You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. This case is about a cyber hacking and economic espionage campaign led by the government. Today, an unprecedented group of allies and partners, including the European Union, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Japan, and NATO, are joining the United States in exposing and criticizing the PRC's Ministry of State Security. China once again strongly requests the U.S. and its allies to stop cyber theft and cyber attacks targeting China. And that was just Monday. Since then, Chinese state media reported a U.S. hacker attacking Chinese servers. And just this morning, a U.S. indictment revealed Chinese hackers had targeted Cambodia, which is considered a close ally to China. But that's not all. In the next few days, we'll also be seeing top U.S. and Chinese diplomats meeting face-to-face for the first time since March. And just a reminder, here's how it went last time. With the wisdom of the Chinese people, there is no way to strangle China. Are the concerns with actions by China, including in Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, cyber attacks on well, the United I States? I think we thought too well of the United States. We thought that the U.S. side will follow the necessary diplomatic protocols. And we will always stand up for our principles. Had the Chinese people not suffered enough in the past from the foreign We'll be hearing from our U.S. correspondent Owen Churchill to discuss what we might expect from this meeting and how the hacking accusations are part of a continuation of Biden's strategy against China. And from our side of the world, Beijing-based correspondent King Ling Lo will be joining us for analysis of the reaction to the hacking accusations and what the mood is like in the lead up to the meeting of Wendy Sherman and Wang Yi. As well as the other big meeting that starts tonight, I'm talking about the big sports meeting known as the Olympics. The cauldron will be lit tonight, and we'll be talking to our man in Tokyo about geopolitical tensions and how they will play out in the Olympic arena. I'm Chad Bray, senior business reporter at the South China Morning Post. Welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. On your mark, get set, let's go. Owen Churchill is on the line uh, with us. He's he's normally in our Washington bureau, but he's currently on assignment in California. So, uh, Owen, thanks for joining. Let's start with this bombshell, uh, or should I say grenade, that was lobbed by the U.S. administration this week at Beijing. On Monday, we had the U.S. State Department accuse Beijing of sponsoring a massive hack of the Microsoft Exchange email server. And this statement was essentially backed up by the U.K., Australia, Canada, and the E.U., was there any warning that this was coming, Owen? There really wasn't. It was it was dropped. I mean, there was a background briefing Sunday night. Um, they rallied a bunch of reporters together to kind of preview this, uh, kind of caught everyone unawares. And although there's not been any indication from the administration that they're going to escalate this with sanctions, as they have done with, with uh, cyber attacks originating in Russia, there is a sense that this is unprecedented just because of the sheer scale of the alliance and the partnerships um, with, as you mentioned, the Five Eyes countries and NATO and the EU specifically, coming together to condemn China on this cybersecurity front that's really not been seen before. is, I think certainly the first time that NATO has spoken out against China in this sphere so forcefully. So that really caught everybody's attention. And I think it really signifies what we've seen so far with the Biden administration is largely a continuation of the maximum pressure campaign that the Trump administration 
backed against Beijing on a number of different fronts, um, on human rights, on Xinjiang, on, on Hong Kong, on, on technology, economy, on, on maritime security and everything. But they're doing it in a very coordinated way with their, their allies and their partners. Um, so that's, that's the context for this action. And it's not the first time that the US has accused China of sponsoring cyber attacks. Um, but it really has this different significance this time around. Yeah, it, 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 it is interesting to sort of see the change of approach, but not the change of tone in the Biden administration. So with Trump, right. a lot of it was going out on its own. But with Biden, let's bring in partners. Let, let's really try to get a coalition to speak against China. Absolutely. It was for, for the Trump administration. It was America first. And now you listen to Biden. It's all America's back. So this week, you know, he was talking at the at this town hall event at CNN and and he was asked about, you know, what are some of the no- notable moments of your first six months in office? And one of the things he raised was his trip to Europe um, to meet with the G7 and to meet with NATO. And he basically took credit, not personally, but on behalf of his administration for, for basically persuading NATO, persuading the G7 to put China front and center of their agenda, you know, their litany of um, concerns about global security. And that's against the backdrop of, of several European countries having some concerns about siding with Washington, um, you know, when at the same time they're facing pressure to to sign, you know, this investment agreement with Beijing. So that's um, something that is really interesting to follow. And in talking with people in Washington and, and in the U.S. administration, are, are you getting a sense that this is the beginning of a sort of new campaign by the uh, Biden administration in terms of, you know, taking on China directly in a uh, different kind of campaign on, on cybersecurity? I think on cybersecurity, is, I think it's the first or it's certainly the biggest action they've taken so far when it comes to China. Um, but it's it's not necessarily surprising because, you know, as we were just talking about, they're really hammering Beijing on on all the fronts imaginable. And ahead of Biden's ascent to the White House, Beijing officials were hoping that there'd be a kind of de-escalation in tensions between the two. But that really hasn't happened. Contrary to what Republicans would tell you, or a number of, you know, the, the prominent, the vocal China hawks in Congress continue to say that Biden's weak on China. But as the weeks progress, they're losing less and less ammunition to support that argument because there's just, you know, every week there's some, there's either sanctions or there's new statements coming out and they just carry so much weight because they're done in concert with other partners. And they're using a lot of fronts on this. I I remember sitting in New York in a courtroom when they unveiled a dozen Russian spies that were sort of, you know, within the U.S., the probably the most famous one is Anna Chapman. But in this case, they used uh, criminal charges against individuals as well as diplomatic allegations, you know, going so far as to say that there was a front company that was supported by state security in, in China. So um, is interesting the fronts that they're taking on this. Yeah, absolutely. And just today, there, was, there were new indictments. There was separate indictments on um, what's known as Operation Fox Hunt, you know, the, the so-called Skynet strategy that China's deployed to try and squash dissent abroad. You know, there was a bunch of indictments today. Also this week, um, other indictments against Chinese entities allegedly connected to attacks on uh, on Cambodia. With the Cambodia allegations that, that, you know, we're just finding out sort of fresh here in Hong Kong this morning, it's an interesting uh, bit of talk over the table as uh, Wendy Sherman prepares to uh, to travel to China and meet in uh, 
a meeting that was, frankly, we weren't sure was going to happen while she was here. And sort of at the last minute, it, it came together. Yeah, absolutely. There'd, there'd already been all this this tussling and back and forth about the format of the talks, who exactly was going to participate on the Chinese side. And now on top of that, you've got all these other spanners being thrown in the works with these allegations and these cybersecurity concerns. So that's undoubtedly going to loom really large over those meetings. The US State Department, for its part, is kind of betting on the fact that Sherman, Wendy Sherman, who's a, she's a seasoned diplomat, She's well-steeped in the region. She was once, um, I think, Clinton's point person on North Korean affairs. She worked even with Wang Yi. She worked opposite Wang Yi during the negotiations that led up to the Iran nuclear deal in 2015. So she's going there with this wealth of experience and a broad network. She's going there after visiting Japan and South Korea. And we heard yesterday from State Department officials that they're counting on her going in with this so-called position of strength, from a position of strength. And you'll remember in March, that approach really kind of blew up in Washington's face because they said that when they met Yang Jiechi and, and, and Wang Yi in Alaska. And that really became a kind of talking point, a viral meme moment in China when Yang Jiechi said, you, ha- you basically have no right to do that. Look at, look at this whole litany of problems you have with your own country. How dare you talk to us that way? So they, the US has obviously not calibrated its approach following that, they're sticking to their guns and they're, they're counting on her having that extra leverage going into the meetings. Oftentimes with these meetings, there's a attempt to show force, but also, you know, is there room to maneuver? And I think from Beijing's perspective, there's a question of will, will there be room to maneuver? But uh, I'm curious what, what you're hearing. We're less than 48 hours away. It's Friday here in Hong Kong from sitting down with uh, between Wendy Sherman and, and, and Wang Yi. And so do you have a sense of what's on the agenda, what specific type of issues they're going to cover? Well, it dep- kind of depends on who you ask. From Washington's perspective, they're anticipating bringing up um, a host of, in their words, very serious concerns they have with China's behavior. So you can count on them raising human rights in Xinjiang, democracy in Hong Kong, possibly Tibet, and then, of course, uh, maritime security along China's periphery and the whole kind of gamut. And then China, on the other hand, even before the meeting has taken place, they've said that they'll use the talks to basically tell the U.S. to back off and you know, to not interfere in their internal affairs. So whether or not we get the same kind of fireworks that we saw in Alaska remains to be seen. It might be more measured, but you can expect that the overarching temperature is going to be pretty hot. It's going to be confrontation more than collaboration and cooperation, even though they've both said that they hope that they can come together where there are areas of shared concern, you know, whether that's climate or Afghanistan or Myanmar or what have you. But certainly I think the dominating theme is going to be, is going to be challenging. You mentioned uh, the, earlier in the podcast that, that she will have traveled to South Korea and Japan before she uh, travels to uh, China for this meeting. And so, you know, do you have a sense of, of what some of the issues are there that will be discussed? Certainly, the South China Sea has to be at, at the top of the agenda. South China Sea, yeah, that will be front and center. I think when it comes to South Korea, there, there may be some areas where they're, they're, they're looking at ways that they could try and bring China in more closely when it comes to managing the denuclearization of the Korean peninsula. But certainly they're trying to, as they have done up until now, you know, Blinken visited the region very early on 
they're they're counting on those allies as being kind of stalwart partners in their campaign to confront China. Um, so we can expect more of the same, I think, with Chairman's visit. In the second part of the podcast, we're going to hear more about the mood in Beijing from our correspondent, Kinling Lo. Um, but, Owen, I wanted to uh, you know, wrap up with you and, and talk a little bit about the possibility of seeing Xi and Biden meeting together this year. It, it's certainly a, a lot of political theater that's on the horizon with the Olympics and the talk of whether the U.S. will go next year to uh, Beijing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, the, Biden is in no rush, apparently, because... Uh, in 2017, you'll, you'll remember that Trump and Xi met. I think it was in April, and it's now already it's now already July, and it's not happening in the immediate future. So when it happens, it will be you know several months after his predecessor did so. But at the same time, you look at Biden, and he's known as a networker, and he's known as someone who deeply values personal interactions. And although recently he's really tried to kind of counter this narrative from Republicans that he has this kind of affinity with Xi Jinping. He's really tried to distance him himself from that framing. Um, at the same time, he deeply believes that foreign policy, I think in his own words, he said that foreign policy is like an extension of uh, one-to-one relationships. So I think Biden certainly would be open to a meeting with Xi and, and his officials have previewed that that is on their long-term, their long-term agenda. The most natural opportunity for it to take place would be in October um, on the sidelines of the G20 summit. Now, as for expectations for any kind of meeting, I think quite clearly the tensions have only deepened since Biden took office. So we wouldn't be expecting any kind of significant breakthroughs or substantial agreements. But it could be an opportunity potentially to kind of shore up the very bottom of the, the relationship, you know, stop that bottom from, from falling out completely, assuming by then that the bottom hasn't already fallen out. You know, if sanctions continue, we could be in a much more fraught situation than we are today. Well, thanks for joining us, Owen. Uh, we'll look forward to uh, seeing your analysis and additional coverage on scmp.com. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we now have our correspondent, Kinling Lo, uh, calling in from Beijing. Uh, Kinling, thanks for joining us. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me. Now, we just listened to Owen talk about the American side of these uh, hacking accusations against Beijing. Can you take us through the official response in Beijing this week? Beijing is obviously very unhappy with the accusation because to Beijing, it is obviously the first time the U.S. and a broad range of its alliances, including Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, Canada, United Kingdom, and of course, NATO and EU have lined up accusation uh, to a, a cyber attack that they accuse from China from a state level. In the foreign ministry briefings, I think the main uh, message that they wanted to send was that, of course, firstly, they deny any um, state-backed cyber attacks on that particular incident on the Microsoft Exchange, which was first reviewed quite some months earlier this year. But then I think the main message that they aimed at sending was actually very specifically targeted at the U.S. Basically, China was saying that U.S. is known as the driver behind many cyber attacks. And actually, the spokesman even quoted some reports from some Chinese um, companies that said um, for the past 11 years, China has actually been recording cyber attacks on the government institutions. So I think it is a quite a clear message that uh, China 
has always placed itself as a victim of cyber attack. And they're saying it is the U.S. that is doing that to them. So it's like basically a rebuttal of pointing the finger back. And, and, and should we take some significance in the uh, 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 repeated statement, at least the way it's been reported in the Western press, of uh, the, the attacks being uh, fabricated, um, the allegations basically that it's, it's fabricated by, by the U.S., fabricated by the, the allies? Um, at least that seems to be the Beijing line we're seeing a fair bit about. Yeah, but I guess it's also like, apart from cyber attacks, it is basically how the Chinese foreign ministry and I guess the Western democracies have been interacting these days. One country saying, you did this, and the other saying, no, we never did. You are the one who did this. Also, this applies on um, human rights issues, even. The U.S. and its allies saying there are human rights concerns. We're concerned about Xinjiang, we're concerned about Hong Kong. And uh, China saying, um, this is our internal affairs, and we uphold human rights, we uphold international values, and there are many human rights problems in the U.S. And a look at... Um, what happened to uh, indigenous people in Australia and in Canada. I mean, that, that has been more or less um, the entire atmosphere, just tit for tat, uh, pointing fingers back at each other. If not for the past few years, it's, it's basically so for the past, past half a year, it's continuously since Biden has taken administration. Yeah, and, and Owen, when we were talking with him earlier, pointed out the significance of NATO's involvement in this. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, really, as, as Biden tries to build these sort of coalitions, I won't say coalition of, a willing, of the willing, but a coalition. And so I, I, I'm curious, you know, how the, you know, the response has been in Beijing. Have they specifically singled out NATO in, in, in some, of, some of their statements about this? NATO's backing of such accusation is significant because it's also the group's first time of accusing China of any cyber attack related activities since their formation. But I don't think that has been that significance at least has been received or responded ranging from the foreign ministry's response or in state media. I think most of the time China is trying to control their narrative to portray that the accusations against China um, as being mainly from the U.S. or driven by the U.S., even when it is U.S. and a whole lot of other uh, Western democracies. So, Kim Ling, let me, let me jump in here. And, and I wanted to, uh, you know, go back to to the bit about, about this narrative that, that's going on in, in, in Beijing and, and a part you mentioned earlier about, you know, U.S. hacking uh, in China. And the Global Times had a report this week, uh, a day after the uh, accusations came out, that a U.S. hacker had attacked uh, servers in China. So what was the beginning of this narrative, and, 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 and what is Beijing saying about it, or is this just something that's playing out in state media? China has always been presenting itself as a major victim of um, cyber attacks. Another interesting response from China, including from the state media and its officials from the foreign ministry, is that cyber attack was once deemed as an area that the U.S. and China could work together on. Actually, back in 2015, former President Obama and President Xi from China have signed a deal saying that they would not allow cyber attacks, state-backed cyber attacks, in the government's knowing. I mean, that was once deemed as a really significant step for their bilateral relations to grow. And then, of course, a lot of things have changed up to now. But even a few months ago, when Joe Biden's administration took over, Cyber attack was one of the areas that um, academics actually had had hopes for um, to say that maybe the countries could do something about this. 
um, especially when two countries are fighting over tech advancement. But the two countries have a huge security concern on cyber attacks, and that is one of the shared concerns on risks. So we have this narrative going on right now, and it's it's at the same time that Wendy Sherman and, and Wang Yi are preparing to meet. We understand that they're going to meet on Sunday and Monday. So how is the local media uh, sort of taking a look at, at this meeting? Are they talking about it, or is this something that people aren't hearing much about within China? Uh, there actually isn't much talk about it from what I saw on, on state media. Uh, I think also it was also not played up by the Chinese foreign ministry. According to them, it was the U.S. who has asked for the meeting. And I've talked to some analysts on this matter and what they were expecting to happen. And most of them don't really have high hopes on the outcome of the meeting. These are Chinese academics, and they feel like it is just to keep communications going so as to do risk management of the bilateral relations that has obviously soured over many, many aspects, even in the past months. One of the experts that I talked to, um, who is the head of the China-U.S. studies of uh, Fudan University in, in Shanghai, basically he was saying that he thinks China would be adopting the same attitude as they had in the Alaska meeting in March, where um, China's top diplomat Yang Jiechi was deemed by the West, at least, uh, to be giving a really... Uh, very speech um, where he said um, Chinese people don't buy like how the U.S. is um, talking to China, interfering their internal affairs. And uh, it was uh, after I came to Beijing to do reporting, actually, I found out that it is still a shocking moment for many diplomats here that um, China has adopted that attitude towards the U.S. in that first meeting after Joe Biden took over. So if that same attitude is continued in the upcoming meeting, I mean, I think it would just underscore more of the atmosphere now that uh, both countries have identified that um, each other is the biggest rivalry. So the last time that we saw the U.S. get together for you know face-to-face discussions with with China, there was a lot of talk of of sort of you know a middle ground. You know that they had it in Alaska rather than in Washington, but you know it turned into a very confrontational approach. And this time around, um, the meeting we understand is in in Tianjin. It's a uh, 62 miles, you know, about an hour's drive from from Beijing. But how much do we know about the venue, what's happening, um, what's going to be said? Do you, do you have, have any sense about, you know, this? Are we going to be able to see it live? Honestly, we don't really know uh, how it is going to, like how the meeting is going to turn out, apart from the fact that they are going to meet. Most of the details have been really um, opaque, really secretive. And I mean, I guess it's more or less uh, like this for many uh, very high-level diplomatic meetings. But especially for this one, there is a sense that there is so much unknown and uncertainty about what to expect from this meeting. It's only the second time that U.S. and Chinese officials are meeting face-to-face after Joe Biden has become president. And the the uncertainties of it, especially from the, the bilateral relations development in the past few months and from the Alaska meeting last time, I feel like the Chinese side could could feel like it's better for them to keep it low until the meeting happens and see what how that could play out in their interest. And that will determine how they will report on it and how that will play out in social media. And as is for now, it's 
it's kind of too early for them to, to I guess, to promote it to the public. Coming up, uh, you know, just this weekend, uh, starting tonight, is the opening ceremony for the Olympics. And, you know, this is typically an area where we see a lot of, you know, national pride. And But I, I wanted to, uh, you know, ask you sort of what the mood you're seeing there in China. Are people talking about it? I think as we run up to this in a time of coronavirus, there's a lot of sort of muted talk about the Olympics right now that we're seeing in many places. I guess it's more or less the same in China as well as in other places in the world that this Olympics could, um, at least uh, before it actually happens, it's quite quiet. Um, it's the most recent and most um, popular post about the Olympics that I saw lately it was about um, the flag bearers, the two Chinese flag bearers, one being um, a really well-known female volleyball player called Zhu Ting. So she's the captain of the team. And Chinese uh, women volleyball has always been um, really important sports for the country where, where a lot of nationalism is basically driven because, of course, the team has been good and there are many star players in the team. So Zhu Ting is, is one of the star players that have been catching attention um, to the Chinese public. I guess as the Olympics go on, there will be a lot more reporting about it. And especially because, as always in the past years, China has high hopes for their athletes in the Olympics. And it has been, like you said, one of the very important ways that they drive nationalism at home. You know, at least I'll be looking forward to the uh, opening ceremonies uh, this evening. And and, uh, it sounds like you're going to have quite a busy weekend with the meeting coming up. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. This week on the Inside China podcast, Mimi Lau takes you to the city of Zhengzhou and the flood disaster that's currently devastating the city known as China's Crossroads. Last weekend, a year's worth of rain poured down in one day, and China's second biggest river, the Yellow River, has burst its banks. Now, a million people have been forced from their homes, and fears are rising about the collapse of dams upstream. You'll hear first-hand accounts of people trapped in subway trains, fearing for their lives as floodwaters filled the subway tunnels, then filled the train carriages they were trapped in. But the worst moment came around 9 p.m. when the water level outside the train window was taller than a person. As we looked towards the tail of the train, most of the compartments were already totally underwater. You'll also hear analysis from Beijing-based reporter Echo Xie about how these floods differ from last year's flood disaster on the Yangtze River and how the climate crisis is changing China's rain patterns. That's this week on the Inside China podcast. With the opening ceremony due to take place in a matter of hours in Tokyo, we thought we might call in one of our colleagues from the sports desk to look at how geopolitics and sport intersect. Rule 50 of the International Olympic Charter states, quote, No kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas, end quote. There's already been reports that social media photographers for the IOC in Tokyo have been ordered not to take photographs if any soccer team takes a knee in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. But if we look at the history of the Olympics, there's no denying that there have been some momentous occasions where sports and geopolitics have come together. There's the iconic image of Johnny Carlos and Tommy Smith holding their fist aloft in the Black Power Salute at the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. But perhaps fewer people remember the 1956 Olympics in Melbourne, which happened just after the Soviet Union had invaded Hungary. 
The men's water polo event between the reigning Olympic champions and the USSR led to one of the bloodiest and nastiest encounters in Olympics history. The water actually ran red with blood. It's not just the escalating tensions between the U.S. and China that are powering national sentiment. There's also a showdown between India and China. And when I say showdown, it might end up with two people holding pistols. Paul Riding, one of our editors on the Sports Desk, is joining us from Tokyo now. Uh, Paul, could you give us a little sense of, of where you are and sort of what you're seeing and the mood there in Tokyo as we approach the opening ceremonies later tonight? Yeah, uh, I'm currently in the in the main media center. There are a couple, but this is the main one. It's a gargantuan building that's been taken over for the media center. There's everything in here from shops and restaurants uh, to individual uh, media halls and, and the, the broadcasting center. So it's a really big setup. Yeah, I think the anticipation is starting to grow now. I think, you know, there's been a lot of uncertainty in the lead up about whether this will even happen. A lot of us wouldn't have expected to even be here probably six or seven weeks ago. Um, but yeah, now it's starting to feel real. Of course, we're just a few hours away from the opening ceremony and people are, there's definitely a bit of a buzz of excitement as, opposed, as compared to yesterday. And it'll be quite different this time around because, you know, as viewers of the Olympics or people who have attended, uh, you know, we're used to having those big crowds. But, you know, the ceremony is only going to have, I think, 900 plus spectators, many of them media and representatives rather than sort of the general public out there. So this is going to have a very different feel than I think what a lot of athletes are used to and what a lot of viewers will be used to. Yeah, that's right. I mean, of course, it's going to be a strange experience. Um, for people who've attended the games, already speaking to some veteran journalists who, who are commenting on how different it all feels with, with, with no spectators in, in the stands. But look, this is, at the end of the day, this is the elite sportsmen and women on the planet. You know, they're here to, to win medals. The, the, the crowds and the atmosphere that they provide, that's a, that's a bonus. They're here for gold, you know. So once, once the events get underway in the next couple of days, that'll be the only thing on their mind. As a spectator, as... I guess I'm here to work as someone here um, at the events and it's my job to comment and take in the atmosphere yeah it's a bit different but again once the events kick off in earnest tomorrow I think people will quickly forget that they're not surrounded by a huge crowd and that's when sport really takes over you know so it's really a time of national pride and and, and China is going to be sending their, their biggest team ever to the Olympics this year I want to talk a little bit about about their chances and, and some of the sports that they really could exceed in. Uh, we, we've spoken with uh, Kinling about the importance of volleyball, for example. What are their chances for gold in volleyball this year? Absolutely. China is sending a huge delegation. You know, they, they had their noses bloodied five years ago in Rio. Finishing behind Great Britain was, I wouldn't call it a disaster, but it certainly wasn't wasn't uh, the result they would have been hoping for. They know they'll finish second to the USA, largely in the middle standings, but to finish behind Britain was a, was a bit of an embarrassment for them. So, yeah, they mean business this time around. We're talking about volleyball in particular. You know, China's always been, for years now, they've been uh, one of the leading forces in world volleyball. Of course, they're, they're um, overseen by the legendary coach, Lang Ping. She's also coached the US, of course, so there's a little bit of needle there between the two. China can boast probably the best volleyball player in the world in, in Ju Ting. She's the flag bearer for, uh, for, for China at these games. Uh, and with her in their lineup, then it's pretty much theirs to lose. The US will definitely fancy their chances of upsetting China, but I think at China just about 
edges ahead in terms of favouritism for that one, but we could be set for the real uh, intense clash there when it comes to volleyball. Speaking of clashes between the the U.S. and, and China, you know, I, I think uh, you know both Americans and, and Chinese look to you know swimming and diving and, and gymnastics in particular. And so I'm curious about these sort of you know arenas for national pride and 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 what we can expect. You know, with Simone Biles, for example, being one one of the big American competitors. Gymnastics and diving in particular are two sports that China's gotten very used to dominating in the last few editions of the Olympics, and they'll be really hoping that they can press home the advances there. Diving, nobody comes close to China. They almost sweep the medal. They took seven of the eight golds on off last time out in Rio. I think it was the same four years earlier. They have it all their own way in diving. Um, and that's that's really, a, you know, they, they expect that they'll, they'll sweep the board in diving. Gymnastics, of course, the US has the edge in gymnastics, maybe slightly because of the phenomenal peerless Simone Biles, you know, her record that Olympics and World Championships is unrivaled um, and she could be the edge if she delivers more gold medals for the US this time around but the Chinese gymnastics team will be led by Fan Yi Lin and Liu Yang both uh, world number one in their respective disciplines on even bars and rings both former world champions but again you know up against that you have Biles who has just been untouchable in world gymnastics for the last few years so that is definitely an arena out in the gymnasium where it'll be really interesting to see how the two fare against each other. I wanted to turn to something that, you know, here in Hong Kong is quite a hot topic for us every year with the Rugby Sevens. Uh, How do we expect the U.S. and and China to perform in the Sevens this year at the Olympics? Yeah, it's really exciting. This is a literal clash. You know, there'll be blood and thunder when China takes on U.S. in in the group stage of, of the Rugby Sevens. Of course, Rugby Sevens at the Olympics, is a, this is just the second time it's been um, competed at the Games. Uh, the US, they finished the credible fifth last time round, and they'll be making their second appearance. China, they kind of squeaked in the back door to qualify, winning through the Asian qualifiers. They're actually ranked behind Hong Kong, China, so it was quite some feat for them to make it to the Olympics. But, you know, same as any knockout tournament, you know, a big event like this. You never know what, what will happen on the day. China against the US will be a really interesting uh, clash in the Rugby Sevens. That's what I'm particularly looking forward to. It certainly was, uh, the last time around, something I quite enjoyed when I was in the UK uh, watching the Sevens. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, and I wonder, The Sevens was a, was, a, was a sleeper hit, I think, at the last games, and I imagine it'll be quite, quite popular this time around again. It is exciting, particularly uh, when a lot of people in, say, the U.S. haven't been exposed to it as much as they might be uh, football or, as we call it, soccer. And so I wanted to turn to that. The, the Euro Cup was, uh, was rough for a, a former U.K. resident. I, I'm sure it was rough for yourself. But um, I want to ask, uh, what are you expecting in Olympic soccer this time around? We've certainly got a, a lot of people who've been through a lot of wear and tear that are now having to come compete for their national teams. Yeah, and it's already showing, you know, there's been a couple of surprising results. Germany were thrashed last night on the men's side. Um, No doubt some hangover from the Euros. Same with France. You know, these European teams, not all of them, but some of them have players who are part of the squad for the Euros. So, yeah, there's definitely some wear and tear this late on into the pre-season, this early on in the pre-season for the new club campaigns, of course. But, again, there's another potential for a US-China clash on the women's side of the football. Both the US and China have strong women's teams. 
Incidentally, they were both thrashed in their opening games, really surprisingly. But if they manage to come through their groups, it's a big if after the heavy defeats they took on the opening day. But if they manage to come through the groups, there's a chance we could see another US and China clash there in the next round. Um, so, yeah, really exciting the football as well. Yeah, and, and finally, there, there's one clash that I wanted to turn to uh, that you know potentially could have an audience of two billion people if it turns out that way. We've we've got a build up between India and China, you know, their armies in the Himalayas, but at the same time in Tokyo, we could see an actual shootout uh, between them in pistol shooting. It's it's strange how this pans out. What with the political environments at the moment. Uh, China is one of the dominating nations when it comes to, to shooting, but India are the up-and-comers at the recent Asia Games. India took more medals than China did. Um, and while China would be fancy to be closer to the top of the medal table than India, it's going to be a really exciting clash. As you say, um, there's a, an opportunity for a huge audience for that one. Paul, thanks for joining us. We'll be uh, looking forward to uh, watching your coverage intently on scmp.com. Okay, thanks. That's all we have this week. Now, Paul Writing and the SCMP sports team are broadcasting live each and every night from the Tokyo Games. You can find them on the SCMP YouTube channel. As well, you can follow our coverage of the China and U.S. meeting at Tianjin on scmp.com, as well as all of our coverage about the ongoing flood crisis in Hunan. If you're on Twitter, follow at SCMP Economy. I'm at Chad Bray on Twitter. Thanks for joining us. Have a good week. Let the games begin.